702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning. Our very first story is relevant to the Zimbabwean crisis. Is there a planet where we can send Bob to that's been discovered <laughs> and confirmed? Well, it's nearly as old as him. Uh, it's about five billion years old, this planet. So it's, uh, it's going to give him a run for his money. Actually, this is a very interesting discovery, not making light of it. It's um, taken scientists at the European Southern Observatory, and this is Xavier Bonfils and his colleagues, about a decade to confirm the existence of this planet. But it has very good prospects for being Earth-like. In other words, similar temperature, liquid water, possibly possibly a place where life could flourish if it hasn't already got started. That's why they're interested in it. Um, It's a planet called Ross 128b. It's orbiting a star called Ross 128. Astronomers are imaginative folk. They tend to name things like that. And this star itself is about 11 light years away. It's about the second furthest, or second closest, rather, uh, exoplanet, in other words, planet outside our own solar system, that is Earth-sized and might offer offer prospect of being a a home from home. What's interesting here, uh, the way it was detected is that the scientists used an instrument called HARPS, H-A-R-P-S, which stands for High Accuracy Radial Planets uh, Spotter. And this is a special telescope, very sensitive. They were looking at the starlight from Ross 128 dipping very slightly every time this planet went in front of the star, between us and the star. And that dip in the intensity of the light tells you something is getting in the way. And the frequency with which that happens, which was roughly every 10 days or so, that tells you... Uh, how close in towards the host star the planet is, and they can also look at how the light bends and stretches coming to us from that star, which is as the planet goes round the star, it warps the surface of the star a little bit, and this has the effect of stretching or compressing the light coming towards us slightly and changes its colour, and that in turn tells you how big the planet is, because you know how big the star is, you can work out how big, how much mass the planet must have. Putting all that data together, that's what they're publishing this week in Astronomy and Astrophysics, Mm. the journal, of this planet which they say is about um, 0.049 astronomical units away from the star that puts it at about a 20th of the distance the earth is away from our sun but because this star is two, uh, 220 times dimmer than uh, our own sun the amount of heat energy reaching this star is going to be only a fraction of the heat that comes to us from the sun so it's not going to cook it's going to be between minus probably minus 60 and plus 20 degrees centigrade on the surface of this planet, which is which is within the realms where liquid water could exist, which is why everyone's excited. Hmm. Well, fascinating. Let's take our first question today from Twitter for a change. Um, here's one from uh, okay, someone without a name, but uh, it says, please ask Chris why some athletes, particularly football players, seem to be don't know if that's true or not, but it seems to be that some athletes, Chris, are more injury-prone than others. Is that true? And if so, does thing, do things like bone and muscle structure determine the probability of someone's uh, picking up injuries? Um, just like any sport, what you're actually bringing to the table is the genetic hand that was dealt to you by your parents and by your ancestors. Because what makes you who you are and what gives you your potential to be anything are your genes, which you get from your parents. Now, what I mean by that is that your genes contain the blueprint for how your body puts itself together, how it works metabolically and biochemically, and 
how resilient it is to the challenges that you throw at it. Now, some people, by chance, are going to develop a very big stature. Some people are going to be more diminutive. Some people are going to have muscles that are better at burning off oxygen. Other people are going to have muscles that are better at working in a sprint. So they're not so good at using lots of oxygen. They're very good at producing lots of energy in the short term. Included in that is going to be how well your body responds to injury and, and how it repairs itself when it is injured. So there will be some people who inherit a very good genetic hand and they will be better at doing some of these things and performing in certain ways than others. And this is why you see people who tend, in the Olympics for example, who tend to be very good runners or very good long jumpers. They are, they are using the opportunity handed to them for the way that their bodies put itself together. So there will be people who, who do that. And then there's the whole psychological aspect to it. There are people who will take more risks and therefore put themselves in more risky situations. They'll push the envelope that little bit harder to, to get that level of achievement they're seeking. In so doing, when you take a risk, there, there's always a potential cost and sometimes people get injured. Let's see whether we can get Eddie to ask the yes. Naked Scientist a question. What is your question for Chris? Good morning, uh, Chris. Hi, Eddie. Um, the question, when, when bottled water first came out onto the market... There was a big hoo-ha on carte blanche and other programs that if it wasn't kept cool, that uh, it would develop algae. And is that so? And uh, with shops selling this in sort of bulk quantities, they lie in the shops for months and months on the floor. So is it dangerous to drink the water if it develops algae? And also, what about the mineral content of the waters as opposed to tap water? Well, okay, thank you, Eddie. first of all, what's in bottled water? Well, the answer is the majority of the ingredients are, not surprisingly, water, the most abundant molecule, as far as I can tell, on Earth. And it seems amazing to me that we take this really incredible stuff, shove it in a plastic bottle and contaminate it with things from the plastic and then lop it, lodge it into shops for ages on end and insist on carrying these bottles around with us and then throwing them away and polluting the planet when we're done with them. Um, it's really a fad. I don't know why it got, got to become so popular. But the bottom line is that the water that comes out of a tap has normally been treated, it's been filtered, it's been exposed to something like ozone or chlorine, and the purpose of doing that is to kill off microorganisms. If you go for bottled spring water, then the virtue of this is supposed to be the sort of water equivalent of being organic for, for farmers. The water has not had anything done to it, so it's come out at source and it's been put in a bottle. It may have been filtered to get any big stuff out, but there will be, inevitably, particles in there which can include bacteria, they can include algae, uh, and they'll probably be there at very low level, um, but they will potentially be there. That means that bottled water is not sterile. Um, it is it is potentially carrying microorganisms, but these are critically not harmful microorganisms at the densities at which they grow. Algae are microscopic plants. They're not going to hurt you anyway. Uh, there are some bacteria in there, but they're probably going to be environmental bacteria which will not harm you at the levels in which they're normally in water. And let's face it, if they're in a bottle of water, there's nothing else for them to eat in there, so it's very hard for them to actually do much growing. If you leave the water in the light, though the algal cells can capture the energy in sunlight and they can grow a bit, which can make the water go a bit green, and then bacteria can eat the algae 
that have grown, and those bacteria then may increase in numbers. So it is a good idea not to get loads and loads of lice on these things, but the, the levels of these things are going to be low. The threat to human health from these things, because it's not human pathogens, bugs that can infect us in there, is going to be low. Um, and better still, why don't we just get the water out of the tap and, and just drink normal tap water instead of all of the overhead that goes with moving this stuff around on lorries and the carbon footprint, which I, I just find ridiculous. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 18 minutes after 10. Uh, is it Gayo in Plumstead? Hi. Um, yeah, I can ask Chris, uh, if an astronaut leaves uh, Earth in a spaceship, he goes into space. I say we are in space already because we are on Earth and it revolves around in space, around the other planets also. All the planets are in space already. Mm, yeah, you're absolutely right. We're on spaceship Earth. Um, and we are travelling around the sun at a furiously high rate, which means we complete our journey in 365 days, but we're only going in a circle, um, rather like Zimbabwe. Uh, hopefully that's going to change. Um, so, but you, you're absolutely right. So, yes, we're in a giant spacecraft. There are 7.5 billion of us on this journey, and uh, we look after our spacecraft, planet Earth, because if we damage it, then we won't have a spacecraft anymore. But yes, if you go into space around the Earth, it's a bit like an astronaut on the International Space Station donning their spacesuit and going and doing a spacewalk. You're quite right. Thank you. Colleen, good morning to you. What's your question? Oh, hi. It's, it's Colleen from Scarborough. You know, um, Chris, we've got a dreadful drought in the Cape at the moment, and we're having to use um, recycle water type of stuff. And our shower water we're using, it's the most dreadful smell. That's, do you have any idea what you can put in it to get rid of this awful smell? Oh, dear. Well, normally, if you're using water which has been intensely recycled, then it's got other stuff in there which has come from various places. Now, I, I won't ask where the water's coming from. But remember that most of the water that... Uh, urban areas use has already been used for multiple purposes and is often completely safe if it's been well treated to remove pathogens bacteria that can make us sick then um, it, it should be okay but what we do know is that the treatment works where when you treat water they don't remove everything and there will be certain chemicals there'll be certain things which do not get removed when they get uh, through the water treatment what you could do to remove the smell, I really don't know because I don't know what's causing the smell. Um, I think what you'd have to do is get someone to analyse the water, work out what's in there that shouldn't be, and then they can offer a suggestion as to the best way to deal with it. Now, for showers, it's a bit of a problem because the volume of water you're using is going to be quite high, and therefore the amount of water you'd need to treat in order to clean it up is probably going to be quite high, and that means it's going to be quite costly. Um, but if it's going to be an ongoing problem, it might be worth uh, taking, a, taking someone to task and asking them to analyse it for you. Absolutely. Alternatively, of course, you can migrate to South Africa. Kathleen, hello. I've got two questions for Chris. Can I go ahead? Go straight ahead, Kathleen, while the okay, line okay. is holding. All right. The first question is, if I buy bread with vitamins in it and I toast it, does it still keep its value? Second question is, the beautiful palm trees in Cape Town along our roads, are they the best ones for um, converting our carbon dioxide into oxygen or cleaning the air while we drive? Well, two, two quite different questions there. One about the environment inside food when you cook it and the other the environment we all share. Well, first of all, the food question. It would depend chemically on the nutrients. When you cook things, you are raising the temperature of the food by a certain amount, anything between you know tens of degrees to hundreds of degrees centigrade. 
some molecules are more stable than other molecules, and that some molecules will react with other chemicals around them above a certain temperature. So the answer is it's not straightforward. When you cook things, you actually liberate more energy and more nutrients from some types of food. You also do degrade some of the vitamins. So you'd need to check which uh, vitamins specifically will be degraded by temperature. Vitamin C, for example, will tolerate a certain amount of heat elevation, but then if you go beyond a certain temperature, it does begin to break down. So it's a compromise between making food palatable, releasing nutrients from food, and preserving as much of the vitamin content and the nutrient content as you can. Your second question about trees and palm trees. Palm trees are specially adapted in order to be able to survive in very specific environments. They wash up on beaches as coconuts. The coconuts then uh, send down a root and plant a new tree on sand, which is terribly poor in nutrients and also very, very dry for a lot of the time. So that's why coconuts are big. They've got a huge store of energy in the form of the fat inside the coconut, the, the white flesh, and they have water in there, the liquid, the milk that we like to drain out and drink, turn into cocktails and things. So palm trees are very well adapted to surviving in a certain very harsh environment, but that doesn't make them the best way of uh, capturing carbon. There are other plants which do grow very quickly, which can draw down lots of carbon and turn it into lots of biomass, wood, very quickly, much quicker than a palm tree. And, uh, for instance, there are trees in, in Australia, some of the eucalypts, which will grow incredibly fast, like five metres a year. Th those are a better choice for capturing carbon from the air and turning it into wood that you can do something with. Um, palm trees, I would say, probably um, they're very well adapted to the climate um, and that might make them good for growing in that particular venue, but they're not great for um, rapid growth and rapid fixation of carbon. Tiso, good morning. Hello. Did people call into radio stations and then go make a cup of tea? <laughs> Seth in Somerset <laughs> West, good morning. <laughs> Hello, Hi, morning. Seth. This morning, Chris. Hi. Um, Chris, what I wanted to know was, um, on my phone when I look at the temperature... We get the actual temperature and then something called a real field temperature. Now, I do understand that um, when the wind blows, the temperature may go down. So in other words, the temperature might be 20, but the real field might be 18. But in the heat, the, te the, real the, 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 the temperature is shown as 19 degrees, but the real field may be 23. Why would that be? Where did you say this happens, please, Seth? Yeah, in Somerset West. No, no, you said, you said that, did you say in the heat it can feel like there's a, a difference in temperature? No, well, yeah, and what I'm saying is that the phone, my, my te the, the temperature gauge on the phone says that it's, that it's, say, 20 degrees. But it says underneath it, the real feel is actually 23. Um, right. So I'm not too sure what the difference between All right, okay. Go is and the real feel. Yeah. Um, first of all, um, the temperature of something is the average amount of energy in the molecules of the air around your body. So actually, if a wind blows, it does not make any difference to the temperature at all. If you put your hand out of the window of a car, it might feel colder. But if you were holding a thermometer out of the window of a car and the thermometer was dry and uh, it wasn't evaporating any moisture, the thermometer would say the same temperature out of the car as inside the car, assuming that it's the same air. And the reason for this is when you're measuring temperature, it is how much energy the particles have got. Why does it feel a different temperature? Well, this is about wind chill. And what's actually happening when you have a hot thing like your body, the energy in your body, the heat is trying to leave your body and go into the environment. 
And the bigger the difference in temperature between your hot body and the environment, the faster the energy is going to leave your body. If you have wind blowing past you, then the air that is coming, that's getting warm close to your body and is therefore slowing down the rate at which you can lose heat from your body, that's being blown away continuously by the wind and being replaced with more cold air at ambient temperature, which keeps the gradient, the rate at which energy can flow away from your body, high. And that's why you get this phenomenon of wind chill. Now, if you've got very high humidity, the way your body loses heat on a very hot day is it sweats. And sweat is putting a thin layer of water over the surface of the skin. And as water molecules evaporate from the skin, they take energy from your skin. This is called latent heat of evaporation. That's used to break the bonds between the water molecules, the hydrogen bonds, and enable them to escape into the atmosphere. That use of energy cools down your skin. But again, if the air is very still and it's very humid, you get lots of moisture already in the air. It makes it much harder for water molecules to move away from your skin and move away quickly and take energy away, so it will feel a lot hotter than actually the ambient temperature would say it is. That's why you sweat more in a in a humid environment, even though the temperature may not have to be much higher. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Thanks so much. Chris, that is all we have time for this week. Thank you kindly for you and your entire team. I'm loving also how at the Naked Scientist on Twitter is in real time also responding to some of the questions on social media. No, that, that's Thank me. You so much that's for me, you see. Is that you? I, yeah, I decided um, I, while all the people were ringing up and not taking our calls uh, when we say hello to them, um, I, I've been typing in the answers <laughs> to some, some lovely tweets that come through. So do tweet at Naked Scientists and I'll certainly pick those up. Yes, and I'll definitely retweet them as well. Thank you, Chris. We'll it's do a it pleasure. Again. Thanks, everyone. Bye.